Could God be evil? That is the question that Alex O'Connor, aka Cosmic Skeptic, asks in his recent video. And I wanted to take uh, a few minutes to, you, you'll know how many minutes I'm going to take. Um, you'll look down at the timeline and you'll realize Glenn really does rabbit on quite a bit. I don't know how long I'm going to take uh, to respond to this video, but I thought it was worth responding to because it's a very thought-provoking uh, video. Alex O'Connor is really making the argument of Stephen Law, a uh, philosopher who in 2010 uh, talked about, could there be such a thing as an evil God, a maximally evil God? And is that any more or less ridiculous than the Christians claim that there is a maximally good God? Alex, Alex O'Connor does a really good job of popularizing that argument and bringing to the surface the things that are most important in this debate. Let's have a look at the video. If God exists, he is perfectly good. This is the position of traditional monotheisms, such as Christianity. Not only does a supernatural creator exist, but he is maximally good and cares about you and me on a personal moral level. So it starts with this, if God, then God is good, um, which, okay, yeah, it, it might be kind of the argument that Christians make, but it is not at all obvious around the world and down through history that the gods are good. Um, if you look at the history of religions, people have thought, yes, there are gods, but those gods are distant, they are squabbling, they are untrustworthy, and many of them are malevolent, sometimes deeply, deeply malevolent. Um, this is the understanding of most cultures, actually. In fact, right in the first century, there was a, a sect within Christianity, which we've now come to call Gnosticism, and they took it absolutely for granted that the creator of heaven and earth the creator of this world is evil and that Jesus came to save us from the creator. And, and here was a sect within Christianity that looked at a world of evil, suffering and death and concluded that, well, of course, whoever is responsible for this must be evil. And of course, that's not just the, the, this, this Christian heretical sect called Gnosticism. Um, that is any number of myths, the Enuma Elish, for instance, or the, the myths about uh, the Egyptian gods or the Norse gods or the Roman gods or the Greek gods or the Persian gods or the Aztec gods. Um, these people, you would not have them for Christmas lunch. You absolutely would not. The, these people were, were squabbling horrendous gods who take revenge on one another in, in ways that are quite nauseating at times. But let's, let's go along with the philosophical argument and we'll, we'll circle back um, to these thoughts at the end. But there's a famous problem with this view called the problem of evil. If an all-powerful God exists who is capable of eliminating all the evil in the world, then why doesn't he? So the problem of evil, as I often say, is a problem we ought to have. And if you don't have a problem with evil, um, then that really is the problem. Okay? Um, people kind of think if you become a Christian, you then have to shoulder the burden of the problem of evil. And of course, I, I think that's, that's the wrong way to think about it. Everyone is walking through a dark valley of evil, suffering and death. Everyone has evil, but what right do any of us have to have a problem with evil? You see, if everything is karma, let's say, as, as the Eastern religions might say, um, I will experience evil, suffering and death, but none of that is a problem, strictly speaking, is it? Because... Karma ensures that whatever evil, suffering, and death that I am enduring, it is entirely just. There's no problem to it either. 
I put evil out into the world or an ancestor of mine or me in a, in a former life. But the evil that comes upon me is not a problem. It's actually a solution. The evil that's coming upon me is retribution and a just retribution. There's no problem of evil if everything is karma. Or take another worldview, such as atheism, okay? If chaos is reigning, then once again, evil, suffering, and death isn't really a problem, is it? Because if everything is random, nothing is wrong, okay? So I always say that the issue, the, the, the trick with the problem of evil is to make sure it's a problem, okay? Let's, let's bear that in mind as we, as we keep watching. Why does evil exist? Why do people get cancer and murder each other and put pineapple on pizza? <laughs> so here, here are these examples of evil, um, murder and putting pineapple on pizza. Um, these kinds of, these uh, examples are interesting examples of the way we experience evil, okay? The way we experience evil is that there is life and peace and that is interrupted, that is taken, that is stolen by the act of murder. Or there is health, and that health is twisted or perverted or taken away by this thing called dis-ease. There is ease, and then there is dis-ease, disease, right? Or there is a perfectly fine, you know, ham-based pizza, and then someone spoils it all by, by putting, you know, pineapple on it. What, whatever our experience of evil in the world, it is an experience of something that was good, and then it gets twisted, then it gets distorted. That's worth bearing in mind. The atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey famously concluded that since if a good God existed, he would want to remove all evil and would have the power to do so, the existence of evil in the world therefore shows that a good God doesn't exist. Okay, you probably already know this, but here's something for your attention. Religious believers have many, many ways in which they respond to the problem of evil and defend the idea that a good God exists despite the existence of evil. Call this the good God hypothesis. Religious defenses of the existence of a good God in response to the problem of evil are sometimes called theodicies and include arguments like evil is necessary to obtain higher order goods or evil exists due to human free will, things like this. This is brilliant. I, I was going to introduce the issue of the problem of evil. I was going to introduce the issue of theodicy. And then as I tried to do it, I thought, you know, Alex does a much better job at this. He, he's very good at laying out um, the, the terms of this argument. And yeah, a theodicy is, is literally God's righteousness, God's justice. Is God just in an unjust world? And how can you justify the existence of evil in an unjust world? And he's about to take us through uh, various um, strategies that Christians employ in justifying the ways of God to man, uh, to use John Milton's phrase uh, about theodicy. I, I don't think he's very um, exhaustive about the strategies that Christians use. I think there are other strategies that Christians use. And there's certainly one strategy that I don't think Christians generally do use um, that he'll mention. But this is, this is a good way of setting up the problem, okay? There is a problem of evil. Christians believe in a good God. How do you put those two things together? But today, I want to show you why most theodicies that the religious put forward to defend the good God hypothesis can actually be reversed and used with equal plausibility to prove that if God exists, he is in fact maximally evil. And we can call this the evil God hypothesis. Now, hold on though, this is ridiculous. Obviously, God can't be maximally evil. That's a ludicrous suggestion. 
Notice the language, ridiculous, ludicrous, God couldn't be maximally evil. Um, and, and yet, you know, the Gnostics, the, the Gnostics were even a Christian sect, right? And they, they looked at the world. They looked at the creator of the world. And they said, well, whoever's responsible for this is in big trouble. They, they must be evil. Um, it is not ludicrous. It is not ridiculous. The, the amount of ludicrosity, uh, that's, that's my word. I've, I'm trademarking it. The, the, amount, the amount of ludicrosity that we find in the, the, the evil God hypothesis has little to do with, um, with logic. And it has everything to do with Jesus and the Jesus revolution that, is, that has come to us. I really, really want to make that point that again and again, Alex and then later on Stephen Law in this video will call, of course, of course, evil God, of course, thinking that there's an evil God is a ridiculous idea. It's a ridiculous idea that millions have believed um, around the world and down through history. Clearly, the world could be worse than it is, and a maximally evil God would make it worse. And clearly, there's so much good in the world as well, beauty and love and laughter things that a maximally evil God wouldn't allow to exist. It should be obvious that these everyday observations are incompatible with a totally evil, omnipotent being. Just look around, see all the good in the world, and you'll see how ridiculous it is to suggest that God is maximally evil. So, I mean, Alex is, is trying to steal man the Christian position and say, well, look, you know, I look out at the world and I see butterflies and rainbows and puppies and isn't it lovely? Um, and, and, and fair play to him that he is trying to steal man the Christian position. I think it, I, I think it can be steel manned further in that um, a Christian primarily doesn't look at the world and say there's a good God. A Christian looks at Jesus and says there's a good God. And those two things are very, very different. Um, a Christian looks at, a world, at the world and they see all sorts of darkness and death and cancer. You know, myself and Alex, we both look at the same world and we both see this mixture of good and evil. And I want to say the jury is out over what the nature of God might be if he exists. Um, the, the, the jury is out until God shows up. And if God shows up in the midst of that evil and pain, well, then we, we, then we need to think again. This is the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, it might not be the heart of some theistic responses to the problem of evil, but it is the heart of how Christians process this matter. It's just worth being aware of that. But that's kind of the point. Most religious believers immediately reject the evil God hypothesis based on these kinds of simple observations. But if the religious can say, look at how much good there is in the world, this disproves the evil God hypothesis. Why can't the atheist say, look how much evil there is in the world? This disproves the good God hypothesis. Well, as I say, the religious can use theodicies, philosophical arguments to reconcile the existence of evil with a good God. But what if these same theodicies work in reverse and can also reconcile the existence of good with an evil God? Do they work in reverse? This will be such uh, an important question. Are terms like good and evil reversible? Are they symmetrical? Are they mirror images of one another? Is the journey from goodness to evil just the same as the journey uh, from evil to good? Are they reversible in that sense? Are they symmetrical? Are they mirror images? I want to suggest to you that it is very obvious that good and evil are not in that kind of relationship at all, and I think that is catastrophic for this evil God hypothesis and, and the entire argument here. But let's see how Alex develops it. 
Well, it would mean that the religious believer has no more reason, absent other factors, to suggest that their god is good than they do to suggest that their god is evil. And so, unknowingly, by responding to the problem of evil with theodicies, the religious are simultaneously using arguments that just as validly support the existence of an evil god. Simultaneously, just as validly, um, you can reverse the arguments. These two things are equal opposites. That, that, that is the assumption that, that Alex and before him Stephen Law make throughout this entire argument. I don't think it stacks up at all though. This is the problem posed by the Oxford philosopher Dr. Stephen Law in his 2010 paper, The Evil God Challenge. Most theists say that the idea of a good God is far more reasonable than the idea of an evil God, but if the arguments for defending the first work just as well in defending the latter, then they're unjustified in claiming that the good God hypothesis is more rational than the evil God hypothesis. Here's the crux of Stephen Law's argument. He doesn't try to prove or disprove the existence of any god, good or evil, and he doesn't pass judgment on whether religious theodicies are successful. He just says that if the religious easily dismiss the evil god hypothesis because of the existence of good, they should just as easily dismiss the good god hypothesis because of the existence of evil. But if the religious think that theodicies can defend the good god hypothesis against evil, then they should also think that these same theodicies can defend the evil god hypothesis against good. He says, and I quote, Theists typically dismiss the evil god hypothesis out of hand because of the problem of good. There is surely too much good in the world for it to be the creation of such a being. But then why doesn't the problem of evil provide equally good grounds for dismissing belief in a good god? Equally good. This is, this is the thing. You have to create an equivalence between evil and good um, for any of this argument from Stephen Law or Alex O'Connor to, to get off the grounds. Um, and Stephen Law raises the issue of the problem of good. Well, let's, let's just compare and contrast the problem of evil and the problem of good. I, in order to have a problem with evil, um, here is what you need. Um, first of all, you need everything to come from nothing. You know, you, you need a cosmos. You know, you, you, you need um, order to come from chaos, right? <laughs> it needs to be a cosmos and not a chaos. You need life to come from non-life. You need conscious minds to develop out of unconscious matter. And you need an objective realm of moral values by which you can judge whether something is good or evil. You know, here are five incredible miracles you require in order to even get to the point where there is a fall from that original ultimate goodness into a thing called evil and in which these conscious agents called people look around at a world that is full of darkness and death um, and conclude that there is a problem with such evil. You need five miracles in order to even have a problem with evil. Goodness and evil are not symmetrically opposite to one another. You can't just reverse goodness and evil. It's, it's far more like light and darkness, okay? Think of the, the famous um, saying by Martin Luther King Jr. Do you remember he, he said, um, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And then he said, hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. Notice the parallels. He is saying, that light and darkness are pairs, they are, they are correlated to one another,
but they are not symmetrically opposite to one another. They are not mirror images of one another. Because darkness cannot drive out darkness. There's no force to darkness. Darkness is a lack of light. It is, to use Augustine's phrase, a theologian from the 5th century, it is a privation of, a lack of light. It's what happens when you turn from the light or obstruct the light. That's when shadow comes. That's when darkness comes. You don't even have the category for darkness if there is not such a thing as light. There is a, an original and originating principle to the reality that is light. And there is no such original or originating principle to this thing called darkness. Darkness is a lack of light. And darkness cannot drive out darkness. Darkness has no force to it. But light can drive it out. Switch on a light, darkness must flee. There's no punch up, there's no struggle. Which is why, you know, the, the Star Wars films have done a number on us, haven't they? You know, this, this balance to the force, a balance between light and darkness. Is there balance between light and darkness? Um, in the struggle between light and darkness, it's over in an instant, is it not? Light comes on, darkness must flee. And Martin Luther King Jr., obviously a Christian, profoundly Christian man, says, look, love and hate are like that. And it's not that love and hate are symmetrically opposite to one another like light and darkness are. It's that hatred is a distortion of love. Hatred is when love gets twisted, right? But they are not symmetrically opposite to one another. They are not equal opposites. They are correlated, yes, but love and hate are not the same kinds of things, such that hate cannot, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. There is a fundamental asymmetry between goodness and evil, love and hate, light and darkness. Think of some other asymmetries. Um, Think of the, the greatest asymmetry you could think of. Think of being and non-being, right? <laughs> that, that ultimate category, being and non-being. Um, are they symmetrically opposite to one another? Are they, are they just mirror images of one another? No, no not at all. Or, or think of life and, and non-life, life and death, shall we say. Think of heat and cold. Cold is the absence of heat. Right? It's, it's not a thing in and of itself. Think of joy. What, what is the opposite of joy? Is it, is it misery? Is it apathy? I don't know. It's, it's difficult to say, but, but the, these things are not just like left and right hands. You know, left hand and right hand are two opposites that are mirror images of one another. Okay? Joy and misery are not like that. Life and death are not like that. Light and darkness are not like that. Truth and lies are not like that. There's, a, there's an originality to the concept of truth that grants lies their special status as a distortion of the truth. Okay? Lies are parasitic on truth. Let me tell you about parasites. I was once uh, in a debate with Andrew Copson. He's the chief executive of the British Humanist Association. And we were debating the topic, is God worthy of worship? And, uh, and his opening 10 minutes was all about parasites. And um, 
he just sort of read out. He'd done some research on parasites, and he said, you know, there's this horrible, nasty thing that burrows its way out of a child's eye, and that's part of its life cycle. And there's this parasite that does this horrible thing. This parasite does this horrible thing. This parasite does this horrible thing. And it was like getting hit, hit in the guts, like, like for 10 minutes, uh, confronting. It was a very confronting speech about the evil that is in this world, the suffering that is in this world, the, the seemingly needless, senseless pain that is in this world. It was powerful. And he just finished the speech by saying, you know, good God, I think not. And he sat down. So in rebuttals, what do you, what do you say to that? Well, what I said to it was, let's think harder about parasites. The story of the parasite is this. There is an original and originating life-giving good. And secondarily, this other thing called a parasite latches onto it and sucks the life out of it. That's the story of a parasite. But as soon as you tell that story, there's an original life-giving good and there's a secondary parasite that sucks the life out of it. You've just told the biblical story of creation and fall. This is the Bible story. The Bible story is that there is an original and originating source of being, source of life, source of joy, source of love, source of light, who has shone out, who has spread that love, who has been the source of being for a good world, for a world that is full of light and life and love. That world has turned from its source and in turning from light has plunged itself into darkness, in turning from love has plunged itself into disconnection, in, in turning itself from life has plunged itself into death. But that is the nature of all suffering that we feel. Every encounter you've had with suffering is an encounter with a fall, right? A fall from origi an original goodness. If I get the cancer diagnosis, it's because the cell division that's meant to happen healthily somehow mutates, right? Somehow there, there, there is a, a malevolent kind of cell division, right? That becomes malignant, right? There's a way that cells are meant to divide. And then there is a way in which you can have a malignant growth. And that is cancer. And, and that's, that's like every experience you've had, you know, or heartbreak or family breakdown, divorce, depression. All these things are experiences of an original good that gets twisted, that gets deprived, that gets distorted, that gets fallen. Evil and good are not equal opposites. And you can't just switch the terms between them. Right? I mean, just... just Think with me about what it would take to believe in an evil God. Okay, so the, the, the Christian says a good God, a good God is the source of life and being for a good world. Let's, do, let's just deal with the creation of the world. The Christian story is a good God is the source of life and being for a good world, which then falls, and that's what evil is. Okay, now let's do the evil God hypothesis. My problem here is that um, Stephen Law and, and Alex O'Connor want to say an evil God, or they, they want to at least um, propose that this is equally coherent. Okay, they want to propose this is equally coherent. An evil God is the source of life and being for an evil world in which this God wants to maximize evil. Do you notice, do you notice the sleight of hand there? 
The Christian position is a good God is the source of life and being for a good world. But the evil God hypothesis is an evil God is the source of life and being for an evil world. Why have, why have they made this God the source of life and being? Why, is that, why haven't they reversed that? Why would such a God create? Why would he be a source of life and being? That sounds pretty good to me. To be a source of life and being sounds like a, a good thing to be. So why would the evil God be a creator of any kind of world, good or evil? In fact, if there is just an evil God, what kind of evil God are we thinking about? Are we, are we thinking about the opposite of the Trinity? Is, is, is this like an evil Trinity and they're just stabbing each other in the back the entire time? And, you know, <laughs> in what sense are they united? Okay, so maybe, maybe, the, maybe it's not an evil Trinity. Maybe it's just a, an individual monad who is as evil as could possibly be. Well, why doesn't such a God be maximally evil and destroy all reality? Wouldn't that be the most evil thing to do? It would, it would kind of make sense, wouldn't it? The, the, most, the, most, the greatest level of destruction such a god could wreak would be to destroy all of reality, right? He would extinguish himself. Ah, oh, what a cad, what a bounder. Why, why doesn't he just commit suicide? Because that would be deicide, and isn't that the worst thing, right? Um, there is a lack of coherence to the evil god hypothesis that is not equivalent when you address the good God hypothesis. That just isn't. Let's see what Alex says. Okay, so to understand this challenge properly, because it might well not be clear yet, we need to return to the good God hypothesis and the problem of evil. How do, say, Christians defend the good God hypothesis against the existence of evil? Well, let's have a look at three of the most popular examples of theodicies, that are widely used by the religious, and you've probably yourself heard them before. First, evil exists because God gave humans free will. For human beings to be truly good and be able to love God, they need to do so freely. Right? If we were all robots determined by God to always do what was good, we'd be compelled into loving him and doing good deeds, which isn't true love or true goodness at all. Loving someone because you're forced to isn't really love, it has to be given freely. So God thinks a world in which there is free will is far more valuable than one without it, and he gives humans freedom to do as they please. Unfortunately, to be truly free, we need to have the freedom to choose evil. And many humans do, and that's why evil exists. It's the price we have to pay to be able to be genuinely, freely good as well. We can call this the free will theodicy. So uh, this is um, a direction that many Christians go in. I don't tend to frame things quite in this sense. In, in some senses, I, I think freedom is the opposite of love. Um, like, like sometimes the free will defense is cited as saying, okay, well, love is the greatest thing and love needs to be freely chosen. And so that's why we put choice front and center. Whereas I, I kind of think choice is the opposite of love in so many ways. You don't jump in love, do you? You fall in love. You feel compelled by... Um, the, the attractiveness of the other, and you just can't help yourself, right? Love language and choosing language doesn't seem to be ex exactly the same. So I, I don't tend to do a free will argument, though I do kind of say God wants to grant to his creatures a particularity, and he wants to grant to us um, an independence that's meant to be interdependence, but God doesn't just extrude part of his own being in order to make a world. He, he makes creatures who are not himself, right? 
And so he, he puts them outside himself in order to draw them in, in bonds of love. But that, that sense of distinction from gods that is at the heart of the, the love that God wants to have with us, I think that is part of the story of where evil comes from. But I, I, I don't sort of hang all things on this idea of free will. Here's a second one. Evil exists because it is necessary for higher order goods to obtain. For example, take the good of bravery. Bravery can only exist in the face of danger. Right? If there's no such thing as fear and danger, there can be no such thing as bravery. Similarly, without the existence of uncertainty and trepidation, there can be no such thing as hope. So God allows these lower order evils because they're needed to produce desirable higher order goods like bravery and hope, which only exist as responses to evil. We can call this the higher order goods theodicy. He's very good, isn't he? He's very good at, at, at laying things out logically. Um, and, and so like classically, within classical theism, um, this has been the default go-to. And I think it's like from a philosophical point of view, I think it's pretty unimpeachable. I don't find it very satisfying. And if you come to me in your suffering, I'm not, I'm not going to like default straight to the higher order evils theodicy and just to say, you know, well, you don't know what you got till it's gone. So it's good that you had the cancer diagnosis because, you know, at least that makes you appreciate the previous 33 years of health that you've had. Um, th that, that is comforting to nobody. It's, it's not the go-to for the Christian. It's, it's a philosophical argument. But as a philosophical argument, I, I think it's, it's hard to knock because basically what you're saying is if there is a God who is so transcendent so as to be responsible for this world, might not that God have reasons for allowing evil in this world that you don't quite comprehend right now? And, um, and the answer has got to be yes. Like there's, there's got to be some kind of um, uh, difference between God's thoughts and our thoughts. As the 7th century BC prophet Isaiah said, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And, and so, yeah, th there, is, there is a sense that God might allow certain higher order goods that are only possible through a fall into evil. And you might even go so far as to suggest what those higher order goods might be, such as bravery, the hero's journey that you're going to go through, such as the, the, the existence of virtue and these sorts of things. Interestingly, um, Alex debated Michael Jones, Inspiring Philosophy, earlier in the year on the question of would God allow evil? And they got into this um, question quite a lot. And Michael Jones was making the higher order goods kind of argument and making it very well. And uh, Alex was pushing back against it. And I actually made a uh, response video to that debate back in June. And uh, I'll put a link um, so you can watch it for yourself. Um, but philosophically, even though existentially um, people don't tend to find it the most satisfying answer to why there is evil in the world, I think philosophically it's pretty hard to knock if God is big enough to be creator of the whole show and to take responsibility for good and evil. He is big enough to have reasons for allowing this evil that you do not right now comprehend, right? Um, so yeah, that's, that's theodicy number two. Finally, here's a third theodicy. Evil exists because without it, we couldn't have a conception of good. If everything was good all the time, we wouldn't notice it, and so couldn't appreciate it. As C.S. Lewis timelessly put it in a slightly different context. A slightly different context. Wow, we're, we're, we're going to have a look at this. 
A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. Unless we know what evil is, we can't know what good is, since we have no reference to compare it to, and so we can never even recognize its presence. We can never truly appreciate it. So call this one the appreciation theodicy. I don't know any Christians who use the appreciation theodicy. I don't know if you know any Christians who use the appreciation theodicy. Send them to me and I will tell them to stop it, okay? Because, you know, you don't, in, in the middle of suffering, you don't tell somebody, well, I guess that makes you appreciate how, how good life was before Jenny got kicked out of school and your marriage went down the tubes. You know, don't you now appreciate the marriage that you did have? Like, don't, don't ever use the appreciation theodicy. And I don't, I don't actually hear Christians, I mean, maybe, maybe Alex does. Um, Alex is uh, studying philosophy at the moment, so maybe, maybe there's a whole bunch of uh, people around him who are making this argument to him. I would not, um, I would not recommend it as a Christian. Um, but you know who I always hear the appreciation theodicy from, right? The, it's, it's from atheists, okay? I, 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 I'm always hearing, whenever I talk about Christ offers us eternal life, I hear constantly about, ah, oh, but that will not make you prize the short span of life that you have, right? I, I, I mean, I hear atheists talking about how the brevity of life and the fragility of life makes us appreciate it all the more. I, I hear that argument a lot, not from Christians. I actually hear that argument a lot from atheists, but, but anyway. Okay, so there we have arguably the three most popular ways in which the religious defend the existence of a good God against the problem of evil. And most religious people watching this will probably subscribe to at least one of them. But what has this got to do with the evil God challenge? Well, Stephen Law asks us to consider the existence of a maximally evil God. This would, of course, disprove Christianity and religions like it, because the Christian God is a good God. So, Dr. Law asks, how might the Christian respond to the suggestion that God is actually maximally evil? Well, the answer would be what we could call the problem of good, right? If a maximally evil God exists, why is there so much good in the world? Why isn't there more evil and suffering? And more troublingly, many people around the globe live peaceful, lavish, and wealthy lives, even if not everyone does. But surely if God was maximally evil, then we'd all be living horrible lives, all homeless and poor and sick, right? The existence of such lucky people living in luxury seems to suggest that God can't be truly maximally evil, because if he was, they wouldn't exist. Now, Stephen Law's point is that most religious people reject the evil God hypothesis because it's so obvious that we're not living under the most evil circumstances possible. But now, hold on, I just offered three theodicies that the religious like to use to defend the existence of a good God, but what if we can use the same theodicies to defend the existence of an evil God despite the existence of all this good in the world? Well, as it turns out, we can. And let me demonstrate this to you now by defending the evil God hypothesis against the existence of good using exactly the same theodicies that I used a moment ago to defend the opposite. Like I say, he's brilliant at methodically laying out an argument and, and I hope that lots of people learn, atheists and Christians and people of all faiths and none as they watch this video, here, here's how to make an argument, here's how to dissect an argument, here's how to try and think cogently about these things. But um, I hope you can see that the problem of good is orders of magnitude more difficult if you have an evil God than the problem of evil is if you have a good God. Because um, by analogy, if there is light, okay, if there is light, then 
you can understand where darkness comes from because the original and originating reality that is light gives you a concept of darkness which is a privation of fall from distortion of the light. That story kind of makes sense. If ultimate reality is darkness, then how do you get light unless there's this injection of this positive thing, right? And good and evil are like that, okay? I can see how goodness falls into evil. I don't see how evil falls into goodness. You can have a vase that gets smashed. It takes, it takes a creative energy and ordering kind of intelligence in order to go from a smashed vase to a whole vase. Do you see that these things are not symmetrical, not in any way, shape or form. The problem of evil, if you believe in a good God, is not at all the same thing as the problem of good when you assume an evil God. But let's, let's go through um, these three theodicies. So if God is maximally evil, why does so much good exist in the world? Theodicy number one, the free will theodicy. Good exists because God gave humans free will. For human beings to be truly evil and to be able to harm each other maliciously, they need to do so freely. I love this idea. And, and both Stephen Law and Alex are, are very aware that what they're, what they're saying is, um, is ridiculous. And here's a ridiculous thought that there might be a God going nyuk, 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 nyuk up in the heavens and glad that we are suffering in misery. And, you know, like, um, who is, it? Is, it, is it the emperor who says, good, good, as, 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 you know, as he sees the suffering that's all around. Is, is that, um, yeah, here's my question, though. Okay, let's, let's enter in, however ridiculous it is, let's enter into it. Does such a God enjoy suffering, right? Or would the correct response for an evil God be to distance himself from suffering or be utterly apathetic? Like, like it's just not obvious what an evil God should do in the presence of suffering. It's far more obvious what a good God should do. It's, it's, not, it's not obvious whether the response to our misery for God should be laughter, enjoyment, total apathy, goes and plays golf for the weekend. It, like, it's not obvious what an evil God should do. And as I say the word should, let's press into that. Okay. God, this evil God, apparently wants to maximize suffering in this world. Okay. Is the maximization of that suffering a good? And therefore, is that an imperative that holds over and above such an evil God that this God is duty bound to follow? Or... Would this God not actually express its evilness by rebelling against this impetus to cause suffering? Do, do, do you see the problem? Like things break down because obedience and rebellion are not equal and opposite things either. Okay. There, there, there's, there is something that's far more deeply troubling about the evil, evil God hypothesis. Not that, that it's just laughable that we have some nyuk, 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 you know, you know, pantomime villain up in heaven. That's not the ridiculousness of it. The ridiculousness of it is the incoherence of a God who is following a law that he must abide by his own nature in maximizing the evil of the creature. Um, well, maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. Maybe the, maybe the most evil thing he could do would be to rebel against the law that says you must maximize evil. And ha, he, he's going he's gonna to stick two fingers up to the law that says he must maximize evil. And instead, he'll bring life and happiness to the world. Like, do you see, it's not just laughable, it's incoherent. And that's the problem with the evil God hypothesis. If we were all robots determined by God to always do what was bad, 
we'd be compelled into doing bad deeds, which doesn't truly make us bad at all, since we wouldn't be responsible for the actions. As Stephen Law writes, an evil god could have created a universe populated with puppet beings that he ensured always behaved unpleasantly, but the behaviour of such puppet beings lacks the dimension of moral responsibility that transforms such acts into actions of the most depraved and despicable kind. To maximise evil, an evil god would want us to perform cruel and selfish acts of our own volition. So that's why a maximally evil god would give people the freedom to be good, because it's the price he has to pay to be able to create people who are also capable of being genuinely, freely evil. Um, it's like the joke, you, you know the joke, a, a sadist and a masochist are in a room together and the, and the masochist says, hurt me, and the sadist says, no. Right? It's, it's, that, it's, that, it's playing on that kind of, kind of sense of ridiculousness, but the ridiculousness goes deeper than that. The ridiculousness is in the incoherence that is involved when you try to treat evil as equally opposite to goodness. It's just not like that. Theodicy number two, the higher order evils theodicy. Good exists because it is necessary for higher order evils to obtain. For example, take the evil of betrayal. Betrayal can only exist in the face of trust and friendship. If there's no such thing as trust and friendship, there can be no betrayal. Similarly, without the existence of love, there can be no such thing as heartbreak. Which comes first, heartbreak or love? Right? These things are not symmetrically opposite to one another. They are like the life-giving goodness and the parasite that comes along later. Without the good of having something pleasant, there can be no such evil as loss or grief. Loss or grief. Which comes first? Does loss or grief come first? And then you get like, no, no. You have the enjoyment of the good thing, life, and then you have the loss of that good thing and therefore grief. There's a story. Every experience of evil that we have tells a story, and the story is one of creation and then fall which is the biblical story. So God allows these lower order goods, like trust and pleasantness, because they're needed to produce desirable higher order evils like betrayal and heartbreak and loss and grief. So God allowing these goods to exist is actually a way to maximize evil overall. And okay, if that is the story, God allows a bit of life at the beginning just so that we can experience loss and grief okay, I can believe in the concept of an evil God at that stage, if that's where the story runs out. Um, and that is why in the history of religions around the world, people have thought that significant proportions of these heavenly beings are themselves evil or malicious or malevolent or capricious or arbitrary or cads and bounders, all of them, right? They, they've, they've had this sense of, of what the gods are like. Um, it's just very interesting that we, we live in a culture, you know, Alex is at a university that was founded in the, in the heart of Christian civilization, okay, to study truths that, you know, where, where theology is the queen of the sciences. Knowledge of a good God um, has so pervaded the academy, it's so pervaded the West, um, that we, we do kind of think of goodness and God going together. The only reason we think that, though, is that the story did not run out when we plunged ourselves into darkness. This, the only thing that has saved us from believing in an evil God is the goodness of Jesus, because this is what love does. When love sees the beloved in trouble, love plunges down into the pit 
and says, your darkness will be my darkness and your death will be my death and your disconnection will be my disconnection, takes it on himself, rises up again into light, life and love and offers us a share in that original goodness. Only if the story keeps on going down and then up, only then can you start to believe in a good God. Okay? So I, I can understand where evil God hypotheses come from. But you've got to look at Jesus. Theodicy number three, the appreciation theodicy. This is the most interesting to me. I don't know why this is the most interesting to, to Alex. And I certainly don't know why he quoted C.S. Lewis as being a proponent of the, of the appreciation theodicy. He quotes from The Problem of Pain in which C.S. Lewis says, and he put the quote up on the screen, that um, in order to have a concept of crooked lines, you need to have a concept of a straight line. No one would ever call lines crooked if there was not some concept of a straight line somewhere in their imagination. C.S. Lewis used that to display to the world for all time in, in, in profound logic the fact that evil is a privation of the goods, that there is an original ultimacy to goodness from which evil falls, right? C.S. Lewis is not talking about you don't appreciate straight lines until you got crooked lines. C.S. Lewis is not saying that at all. I hope Alex knows C.S. Lewis is not saying that at all. And I hope Alex reads the context for C.S. Lewis's quote here. What he's saying is that the existence of evil is like the existence of a crooked line. But you don't call a crooked line crooked without some idea of the straight. And you don't call an evil world evil without some concept of something that is good. Good with a capital G. Okay? C.S. Lewis is making an argument from the evil of the world to an ultimate and original goodness. Because that's the way it works. Evil is like the crooked line. If there was no such thing as a straight line, we wouldn't see a crooked line and say, that's crooked. It would just be a line. And if there was no such thing as goodness in the world, we wouldn't just look at the evil, pain, death, suffering, disease, and disaster of this world and just think, oh, it's just stuff, right? We don't tend to think like that. We tend to think that's wrong. But if everything's random, nothing is wrong. Why is it wrong with a capital W? Because there's something right with a capital R. That was C.S. Lewis's argument. <laughs> C.S. Lewis was not making an appreciation theodicy, but let's, let's have a look. Good exists because without it, we wouldn't have a conception of evil. If everything around us was evil and depraved all the time, we wouldn't truly appreciate it because we'd have no context or reference for comparison. By providing a world containing lots of beauty and virtue, evil God provides a contrast against which we can fully appreciate how bad the existence of evil is. As Stephen Law puts it, if everything were uniformly, maximally ugly, we wouldn't be tormented by the ugliness half as much as if it was peppered with some beauty. Here's another pairing that is not equally opposite with one another, okay? Beauty and ugliness. Ugliness is a deformation. It's a, it's a failure to attain to the ideal that is beauty, right? And you don't get to reject beauty and then still have some concept of ugliness. Ugliness is parasitic on this original thing called beauty. Um, again, it's, these things are not symmetrical. Oh, I've said it. I've said it a hundred times. You get the point. Consider the fact I mentioned earlier that some people have wonderful, luxurious lives. And this seems to suggest that God isn't maximally evil. But by allowing some people to live in luxury, it makes it all the more painful and depressing to live in poverty and sadness. The fact that a homeless man is living on the street and freezing to death in the winter is surely evil. But if that man is freezing to death 
right outside a mansion in which other people are living comfortably and warmly in luxury, doesn't this make it more evil that the homeless man is freezing to death? Isn't it more bad to think that someone is suffering when there are others who are not and who have the capacity to help him, but refuse? By allowing some people to live luxurious lives, evil God makes the suffering of others all the more acute and impossible to bear. And the randomness of either being born into wealth and health or poverty and sickness makes being born into the latter all the more evil since it's so arbitrary. So to maximize the suffering of those people, an evil God would allow some people to live luxuriously to provide a painful point of comparison. So I, I really like this. I mean, I mean, Alex is really entering into this and showing us where these thoughts lead. And that's very, very helpful, actually. And I, I would agree that actually um, there might be a cruel God. If the story is just, there is a good world and it falls into darkness, the end. Like there is a name for a story that ends in the pit and in darkness. It's called a tragedy. Okay. And if God, if the story ends there, if the curtain falls with everybody dead, you call it a tragedy. Okay. And the only thing that makes me believe not in an evil God is not a philosophical argument about the asymmetry of light and darkness. It's not. It's Jesus. Okay. It's the fact that the curtain rises again and there's another act in the play. And there is the author made into the hero who takes the darkness on himself and rises up again to offer his whole creation, light, life and love forever. Only because of that do I believe in a good God. Because actually, actually I, I can believe that if the curtain falls when all is in darkness, then sure, call him evil. Fine, I'll be an anti-theist. If it's not for Jesus, I'll write, about, I'll write against, I'll speak against, I'll preach against such a monster with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course I will. Like, it's only Jesus that makes me believe in a good God. And historically speaking, it is pretty much Jesus who has made us believe, really believe, in a good God. It's actually Jesus that makes us all chortle and laugh at the evil God hypothesis. How ludicrous, how ridiculous, of course, you know, nobody really thinks that God's, God's are evil. Um, Jesus has taught us that because historically people have thought of the gods as evil. And then Jesus showed up. So I wouldn't go down these three theodicy routes. I'd kind of take you to the gospel. I'd, I'd take you to where Jesus enters into this world to take its evil on himself and rise up again. And look at, look at him, okay, if he is who he says he is, he's the son of the father, full of the Holy Spirit, if he is who he says he is, he seems to make a calculation. Bible says that he considered the suffering of the cross worth it for the joy that was set before him. And if he made that calculation, and if even his cross was worth it for the joy that was coming, then our little crosses and our little suffering is worth it for the joy that is coming. The answer is not really so much a, a philosophical argument. The answer is a story. And isn't it interesting that all the stories that we ever tell take this shape? If you have ever told a story, you are a creator, a creator of a world. And the shape of your story was probably there was a kingdom of light and life and then a dragon came and stole the princess and it was plunged down into darkness. But then a prince you know, rose up and he slayed the dragon and he got the girl and there was a wedding and a song and they all lived happily ever after. The stories that we tell take that shape. 
Why do all the stories we tell take that shape? Maybe we're in one. Maybe the hero has really come. Look, there's, there's more on Alex's video, and you can check out uh, the rest of it. He basically cuts to Stephen Law, where Stephen kind of says, yeah, it's ludicrous, it's ridiculous, the evil god hypothesis, but it is equally ludicrous and equally ridiculous as the good god hypothesis. So let's uh, quit it with all these uh, theodicies. Um, not true. It's just not true. Evil and goodness are like darkness is to light. Not equal opposites at all. And look, I'm recording this at Christmas, and you might know the famous Christmas reading. It, it says, In the beginning was the Word, this title for Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that is Christmas. And right in the heart of that Christmas reading, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Can you look at Jesus and see, okay, this is a dark world. But here is the kind of lover of my soul who would endure my darkness for me and rise again to light. Is he the kind of God you can trust? Don't trust to a logical argument about the asymmetry of goodness and evil. But do trust the Jesus who came. I, I just find it so interesting about those Gnostics. Here, here is in the first and second and third centuries, here are a bunch of people who look out at a world and yeah, it looks evil. And therefore, like, I have a complaint. I'm going to address it to the manager. I assume that the manager is evil as well. But they couldn't say that about Jesus, right? They believed in an evil creator and a good Jesus. And they were condemned as heretics because actually Jesus is the word of God. Everything he was doing was revealing to us a good God, full of light and life and love. And if you come to trust Jesus and to trust Jesus' view of the Father, then you start to have a, a framework in which to understand all things. He says he's come from light, life and love. He's plunged down to darkness, death and disconnection to offer us light, life and love. It's the great comedy, not the tragedy, the comedy. And it's the answer to our heart's longing. Do you have a problem with evil? I hope so. Of course, if you think that everything is karma, you don't have a problem with evil. And you don't have a solution either. What goes around comes around. Are you an atheist? Do you believe in chaos? Well, again, you don't have a problem with evil. You don't have the problem that you should have with evil. You know that when you're going through the mill, you're not just experiencing something that's maladaptive to your survival. You're experiencing something that is wrong with a capital W. Well, that's because there is someone who is right with a capital R. And he's come to you at Christmas to enter into your darkness and to offer you his light. These things are very, very different. If you want to find out more about my thoughts about uh, Alex O'Connor and his kind of uh, approaches to theodicy, I'll put a link uh, to the video that I did back in June when uh, I, I uh, talked about his debate. But uh, that'll do for now. That'll do for now. The evil God is not the same as the good God. There is an originative and original goodness. And let's look to him.